Queen Victoria of England ruled in 1837 to 1901. The royal family appeared to be healthy until the next generation arrived. First, her son Leopold had a fall at the age of 30. This should have been a relatively mild injury, but Leopold could not stop bleeding, and sadly he died of a hemorrhage. The rest of her nine children seemed to be healthy, but her daughter Alice, who married into German royalty, and her daughter Beatrice, both had sons with the same illness. Victoria's granddaughter, Alex, daughter of Alice, married the Tsar of Russia, Nikolai Romanov, and had a son called Alexei. He appeared to have a similar inability to stem the bleeding from injury, and was eventually wheelchair-bound due to his health. Eventually, cases of this bleeding disorder were seen in the royal families of England, Russia, Germany and Spain, giving it the name, the royal illness. No one before Queen Victoria was known to have this illness, nor did they have any children with it. Yet nine of Victoria's descendants had this condition, leading many people to believe that it started with her. This has inspired a host of interesting stories, including that of the Doctor Who series, where the Doctor believes that due to an interaction with a werewolf, Victoria's descendants had inherited the curse of the werewolf in their royal blood. Hello there, welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a dive into the world of genetic diseases and try to lift some of the stigma surrounding them. I'm your host, Anthony Goddard, and today I have an exciting announcement as I am joined by my new co-host, my wife, Juliet. Hello! Hey, how's it going? It's okay, thanks for having me. How's the quarantine? Endless. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Being locked up is a bit maddening. Yeah, pro tip. Try think about whether you want to be quarantined with your in-laws. <laughs> the answer is probably always no. <laughs> so, uh, did that story give you any idea of what we're going to be covering today? No, I know it's something that Queen Victoria had, but royal families across Europe were really messed up, as far as I know. Inbred is the word that a lot of people would use. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that kind of uh, interbreeding meant that there were quite a lot of genetic illnesses, but this specific story is actually about haemophilia, which is the reason why they can't control the uh, bleeding. From your Latin, you'll, you'll know that haemophilia basically means like blood loving. Yeah. And in this case, it just means that they keep bleeding from an injury that you wouldn't expect to continue bleeding. So the royal family actually had a specific subtype, which will be what we mostly cover, but we'll do a bit of both called Haemophilia B. And uh, there's three different types of Haemophilia. There's Haemophilia A, B, and C. B and A uh, are both sex-linked genetic ones, so you actually get it through the X chromosome, and as a result, it is always going to be more common in men than it is in women. Because... Ooh, so I probably don't have it. Well, you definitely don't. You haven't <laughs> got a family history. I mean, well, I can't say definitely, but it's extremely unlikely. But yeah, interestingly, it comes with a, a host of interesting other names. There's Christmas disease, which doesn't mean that you get it at Christmas. It's because the first person diagnosed with that specific subtype 
had the last name Christmas. Oh, so you get a lovely Christmas present of Haemophilia. Uh, not quite. <laughs> but it's also known as the Royal Disease, Factor 9 Deficiency, F9 Deficiency, and then the really complex Plasma Thromboplastin Component Deficiency. Those are scary words. Yeah, don't worry. So the kind of broad strokes information is that Haemophilia is a hereditary disease where the blood is unable to clot quickly enough if it can clot at all, which means that uh, some injuries that would normally be quite minor can be very severe. So, like, if I fell off a bike and skinned my knee and had haemophilia, it just might not stop bleeding? If you had a very severe case that wasn't handled properly, yes, that is a potential risk. So, yeah, I think it'd probably be worth just going over some of the symptoms. If you have haemophilia, you can expect to bruise more easily because uh, bruising is actually a form of internal bleeding under the skin oh. so you know the, the really tiny blood vessels you hear about in biology class called the capillaries mm -hmm. when they break and you get a little bit of blood going into the tissue that causes a discoloration which is the bruising oh. so that's actually little bits of internal bleeding Whoa. so because you can't clot as well small injuries that would normally just kind of get clotted almost immediately actually don't and then you end up with these large bruises forming okay other symptoms, because it kind of gets scarier from here, include increased risks of hemorrhage, so the internal bleeding. You can have spontaneous bleeding in more severe cases. Spontaneous bleeding? What? I just suddenly start bleeding. Yeah. So you know, from how, where? Well, so you're like how someone's prone to getting a nosebleed. Yeah. Uh, in that situation, they've just got fragile vessels, so the vessels all kind of burst, they'll keep bleeding, and they won't be able to control it so well, so they'll have these what appear to be random heavy bleeding episodes. Okay, can that happen internally as well? Yes. Oh no. So this is in very severe cases. You would have to be having a very rough time and it wouldn't have been handled well at this point. Okay. So yeah, uh, as a result of those uh, bleeding issues, you can also end up with swelling in your joints because you end up bleeding into the joint itself and then that puts pressure on the joint. So it then damages the joint, and you, and that's why, for example, it was Alexei Romanov ended up being wheelchair-bound, because he was bleeding into the joints and his knees at the very least. That severely damaged the joints, and he wasn't able to stand on them anymore. Because they were full of blood? Um, not necessarily that they were completely full of blood, but because they'd had all these instances where blood had gone in and just caused a lot of pressure. It's like if you keep on pumping a balloon more than you should, it's going to, even if you just let it pump a bit and then let it down and then keep pumping it, it's going to be worn up and it's never going to come back to the shape it was before. Oh no. Also from these bleeding issues, if you get uh, bleeds around the brain, it's possible to have seizures because you're not getting signals being sent to the right place or you're not having, uh, you might have a lack of oxygen to a part of the brain and you go to a seizure. You can, this uh, has escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah, well this is obviously really severe cases. Also from that same sort of thing, if you have bleeding that starves certain neurological signals, so if you if it if your parts of the brain don't get enough oxygen or if neurons don't get enough oxygen, you can get paralysis in different parts of the body. Oh no. So yeah, if, if you do not handle haemophilia, it can be a really, really extreme situation to be in. And uh so obviously one thing that's quite important for people is to try and diagnose it. Yeah. Uh, is it not obvious? Yes and no. What type of haemophilia and how you go about treating it is not quite the same as whether or not you have a bleeding disorder. 
So the quick dirty test for if you have a bleeding disorder can be what's called a coagulation screening test. Here they just take a blood sample and they'll look at things that are involved in blood clotting. So platelet cells, which are the little cells that are kind of like um, little discs that form, that just plug up the wounds that you have. Okay. And they will also look for uh, bleeding time. So they might cause a small cut and see how long you bleed for before you clot. Obviously, these are all really crude tests. And then they also might do a liver function test, because if your liver's not functioning properly, it might show you're not producing some of these clotting factors. Oh, that's a surprise. Yes, Livers no. produce clotting factors? So, no, the liver itself doesn't produce clotting factors, but these bleeding disorders can affect how your liver functions. I feel like everything affects the liver. Kind of, yeah. Your liver deals with most crap in your body. Okay. So that's obviously a really quick way to diagnose it. And at that point, you're going to know that uh, someone's got a bleeding disorder, but you're not going to know if they've got haemophilia B, for example. And will this probably happen when you're a child? Because that's when you're running around getting all sorts of cuts and scrapes? Yeah. Ideally, this would be something that uh, during childhood you'd get diagnosed. And you have it from birth. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's a genetic disease, you're born with this. So. Another thing you can do, and this is how you can work out what type of haemophilia you have, is called a coagulation factor assay. The reason for this is each haemophilia has a different clotting factor missing. And a clotting factor is just essentially it's a protein on this whole signal, um, this whole chain of signals. So you, you'll get the first signal being sent, and then that will then activate the next one. And then each of these are clotting factors. And then that one will activate the next one, which will then activate the next one, which will eventually then cause a change to happen. And the reason that you do that is that the more stages you have, the more powerful the original signal has to be to form a clot. And that way, it means that you don't just form random clots around the body, and instead you get a clot to the actual site. At the wound itself, there's going to be a really strong signal to clot. Mm -hmm. But because it's in the blood, and this stuff kind of washes around, you're going to get a bit of it everywhere. So Whoa, might... so every time you get a cut, your whole body is like, all the blood is clotting. The first few clotting factors are likely to kind of be like, yeah, we've got a problem, and then they'll get washed away and they'll go somewhere else. But there may not be enough of them to then activate the next one. So this way, having multiple steps controls the clotting as well, so that you only clot where the injury is. Okay, so if you're missing a clotting factor you're missing something in that chain so that makes you clot less yeah if you if you're missing something in the chain the signal can't get passed on okay or if you just have a fault with it the signal is not passed on as effectively okay so the signal is not all of the signal is making it to the right parts of your body to say clot please yeah basically okay so with that, each type of haemophilia is distinguished by the type of clotting factor issue. So where I said that haemophilia B is known as factor 9 deficiency, what you do with this uh, coagulation factor assay is you take some blood and you would measure how much of these different clotting factors they had. And if they had haemophilia B, they'll have low levels of it. And okay. the amount of uh, that factor that a patient has will give you an idea of how severe their condition is. If they have mild haemophilia, then you kind of expect between 5 and 40% of normal amount. 
Okay. If they have moderate, it's about 1-5% of the normal amount of clotting factor. That seems very low for moderate. Mm-hmm. And severe is 1% and lower. So pretty much none. And that's where you can get these spontaneous bleeds, because if you get small injuries, they just keep going. And okay. they're kind of spontaneous because you won't know what caused it. And then once you have uh, an idea of what type you have, what you can do additionally is you can do a genetic screen to see what mutation you have. And then that would also confirm it. So if you have a mutation in the gene for this clotting factor 9, then you know the person has haemophilia B. Okay. If you're aware that you have a family history of haemophilia, you can actually do some genetic screens during pregnancy. One of these is called chorionic villus sampling. And what that means is that they just take a small sample of the placenta. From the placenta? Yes. Is that safe? Yeah, yeah. As long as you get the, the right time pregnancy, then that's absolutely fine. They'll numb the area, they put a needle in, they take a small amount out, and then they check the DNA. Okay. And they know what they're looking for, because if you've got the family history of haemophilia B, they'll go, right, that's the gene we're going to look at. And the same thing for amniocentesis, which is the one where they take a small amount of amniotic fluid. So when a fetus is developing in the womb, they're within a big bag of fluid that's like a cushion for them. A bit like... They're in a big bubble. Yeah, or a big egg. And you're just taking a little bit of that out, because the baby sheds skin cells and stuff like that. And you just check DNA. Oh, cool. With both of those, they're very safe. They're extremely low risk. So they're a really good test to do. And from that, you can find out while pregnant whether or not your child is going to need uh, treatment for haemophilia in their life. Okay, so then you can be ready. Yes. And the mutation might be able to tell you how severe it is, but most of the time that's where you want to then look at the clotting factor levels because we don't really understand enough about the genes for that. Does haemophilia change within your lifetime? Can you have really low clotting factors at some point in life and have higher another point? From my research, I would I was only able to find one where that was the case. Um, there is a weird subtype of haemophilia B, which I'll go into a little bit more detail later because it has a little bit more relevance later. But what happens is your clotting factors are low, but they start to increase during puberty. Okay. But for most people, the outlook is fairly straightforward for a patient. So life expectancy can vary widely. However, and this is the important thing to note, if a patient's treatment is managed properly, their life expectancy is marginally shorter than the average individual. And they will actually outlive people who are like chronic smokers a lot of the time or chronically obese. Oh, wow. Because the comorbidities that exist with that often end up being more severe than well-handled haemophilia. And by well-handled, is that treatment or is that not bumping into things? There might be some preventative behaviour if treatment's an issue, but there are actually treatments available. Okay. Um, and uh, those are pretty good. Because it's obviously an issue with blood clotting, all the medications work by promoting clotting. And historically, this has included donating blood plasma, and that one can kind of work for any form of haemophilia. So just recap with me, what, what is plasma? So when you take a blood sample, so you have like a red and a kind of yellowy se separate layer. The yellowy separate layer is the plasma, and the red bit is all the red blood cells. Okay. And the plasma is basically the liquid that 
all the blood cells are suspended in. So plasma therapy is when you just take some of that liquid that the blood cells are suspended in from a healthy person and give it to somebody else? Yes, because a healthy person will have regular levels of it. So it's like supplementing them with clotting factor. How long does that stay in your body? You have to have frequent infusions of that, and the amount would vary depending on the severity of your condition. The other treatment that has been developed is factor concentrates. Now, what that means, don't worry, I, I can see the stress on <laughs> your face. So what that means is because we know that there is clotting factor in a healthy person's plasma, when we take the plasma, we freeze dry the plasma so that you have like kind of like a concentrated powder with the clotting factor and other uh, chemicals and proteins in the plasma. And then what that means is we have a more concentrated sample that we can then put into a suspension or a solution and infuse into someone. Like plasma stock cubes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the bisto of treatment. <laughs> but yeah. So you know that earlier I mentioned that we're obviously lacking in uh, factor 9 for haemophilia B. Yeah. Well, there's only one gene that's involved in that. So what this ends up being called is a, it's known as a Mendelian a mutation. So you know when you hear about uh, Gregor Mendel's peas? Yeah, him and his peas and... Punnett squares. And how each gene has a specific attribute. Well, in this case, it does. So you have this one gene and you have two copies that you get from your mum and your dad. Okay. And in this case, because it's a sex-linked one that you get from the X chromosome, it's slightly different. It's only the X chromosomes that carry it, because the X chromosome is longer than the Y. So the Y does not actually have this gene. Okay, so you will only get it from your mother. Men will only get it from their mother. So your dad has an X and a Y. Mm -hmm. For him to pass on an X chromosome, you have to have a daughter. Okay. So if a son gets haemophilia, the X chromosome has to have come from the mother. Okay. If you are a woman or have two X chromosomes, you need the gene for haemophilia in both copies of the X. Yes. To get haemophilia, a woman needs two X chromosomes that are mutated, which okay. means that she had to have gotten a mutated X chromosome from her father and a mutated X chromosome from her mother. For a son to get haemophilia, he would have gotten a Y chromosome from his dad, and then he would have gotten a mutated X chromosome from his mother. But because the Y chromosome does not have that gene, the X chromosome dominates in that situation, and therefore they get haemophilia. Okay, so you can get it without either of your parents having symptoms? Yes, if you're a man. Okay. Although, weirdly, in um, haemophilia B, 30% of the time, the mutation is spontaneous. And that's why it probably showed up in the royal family. Queen Victoria probably was the first case, and she just had a random mutation in her X chromosome, and then, as a result of that, she passed it on to her family. Just surprise! I have I have the haemophilia gene now, and I'm just going to pass it on to everyone. Whoops. So let's recap. <laughs> okay, so to recap, haemophilia is a blood clotting disorder, which means that you will bleed more readily if you have the condition. Now, haemophilia B, which is the one we're covering more, more here, which is related with the royal family, is an X-linked recessive condition, 
Now this means that you have to get it from the X chromosome and it means that if you are a man you only need one copy of the mutated gene to get the illness because it only exists in the X chromosome. So men are more likely to get it? Yes, and there's only one gene involved. And actually for men it's about 1 in 25,000 male births. Whilst when I was looking they didn't bother finding numbers for women, probably because they're significantly lower and just couldn't be bothered. I'll be honest, sometimes with this stuff, it's just that no one bothers counting certain groups if they're rare enough. Wow. As well as the symptoms, you've also got some other illnesses associated, and one of them is an extremely sad moment in history that couldn't have really been avoided given what we knew at the time. Remember I was mentioning about the blood plasma treatment yeah, and the uh, clotting factor concentrates? Well, you get those from blood donors. And this treatment was developed for separating the clotting factor from blood plasma in the 60s. Okay. Now, in the 60s, we didn't know that there were bloodborne viruses. By the 80s, what we found out is that there were bloodborne viruses, hepatitis C and HIV in particular. And unfortunately, what had been happening is some of the people that donated blood for this clotting factor treatment had actually been HIV and hepatitis C positive. And as a result, loads of people in the 80s were diagnosed with getting HIV, the virus that causes AIDS and hepatitis. And very unlucky patients from transfusions ended up becoming hepatitis and HIV positive. Oh, no. Just because they were getting their normal treatment that they needed to live their lives. And at the time, scientists couldn't have known it was going to happen. It was something where knowing that blood could transfer these viruses and these particularly nasty viruses wasn't, wasn't understood until 20 years after the treatment had already been put in place and circulating. So for a lot of people, it was already too late. Now, thankfully, we've learned from that. We screened blood for HIV and hepatitis C before making these factor preparations, but there was a price that was paid for this. So in the 80s, if someone had haemophilia and they had HIV, they were 10 times more likely to die than someone who was HIV negative. That's so sad. Yeah, the death rate was significantly higher in that group. And the saddest thing about it is that it wasn't controllable. Because it wasn't like we knew better and we neglected the information. We didn't have the information. That's really tragic. But I guess we've learned from that. And now there's a lot more rules around donating blood and a lot more processes to screen blood. Thankfully, yes. This is one of those examples where something awful happened and we've learned from it and we've applied it properly. Another illness that is associated with haemophilia is osteoporosis. Osteoporosis, is that something often elderly people get, right? You would often associate it with them, yeah. It's a thinning of the bones to the point where they become brittle. Okay. Unfortunately, the two things predominant within groups of haemophiliacs that cause this is long periods of immobility. So that bleeding in the joint that makes someone immobile, then the lack of mobility on the bones, and therefore the lack of pressure causing the body to continuously repair and rebuild those bones, then made them weaker. 
Oh no, and I presume getting a broken bone if you have haemophilia is a much bigger issue. Because you're going to bleed more heavily. Another thing that unfortunately also was causative in uh, osteoporosis was hepatitis C and HIV. Both of them have shown to increase the uh, chances independently of having osteoporosis. So if you're unlucky as a haemophiliac, you could have immobility due to joint damage, hepatitis C and HIV, and all of these things would damage the bone and they become more brittle. Oh no, so it all just compounds. But having the treatment throughout your life, if you're lucky enough to have access to good health care, can help prevent that, right? Yeah, you can be fine. Um, as you know, we had a friend from uni who was an absolute nutter doing tequila 10Ks, mountain climbing, skiing, snowboarding, and he's a haemophiliac. And it shows that with adequate treatment, you can live a very active and sometimes insane life. <laughs> there was another quirk that I did find. Some people who took anabolic steroids actually saw an improvement in their haemophilia. Steroids. Like, like juicing up in the gym. <laughs> yes. Like that kind, yes. Um, this is very specific. I do have to specify why. So there was a subtype that I mentioned earlier called haemophilia B laden. What it is, is the mutation isn't in the gene itself. The mutation's in a section before the gene where different little components in your cells will attach to it to say, we're going to read the gene. Okay. What this does is it stops those little, um, what are called transcription factors from attaching upstream of the gene and actually allowing the gene to be read. Okay. So the gene itself is fine, but they're not reading it and you're not making anything from it. So the effect is the same? Yeah. However, testosterone can attach to the mutated promoter region, and as a result, the increase in testosterone during puberty causes, for people with haemophilia B-laden, a drop in their symptoms. The clotting factor goes up, the symptoms improve. So, there have been some trials for those specific patients to see if anabolic steroids can help. Though at the moment, I wouldn't recommend it due to the side effects associated with anabolic steroid use, such as hair loss, liver disease, kidney disease, heart disease, and also suicidal tendencies. Don't and... take steroids at the gym, kids. Yeah. So why are we focusing on haemophilia B specifically? It's because of the uh, interesting significance it's had on history. Okay. So it's pretty unpleasant, isn't it, some of the things? Yeah, it sounds like quite a scary condition to have because you're going to grow up being told that you are more fragile than others and constantly having to go get treatment and go to doctor's appointments. And so it seems like it could have a fairly big impact on your life. Yeah, it can do, especially if people are ignorant enough to believe that paper cut's going to kill you or something like that. But uh, this condition seems to have been around for quite a while, though. That's the strangest thing. I tried to work out uh, how old this condition was, and it looks like it's incredibly old. What does incredibly old mean? So this is based off of a certain assumption. In genetics, a lot of the time we use a common ancestor theory. So if something exists in a range of groups, the most likely scenario is they got it all from the same source. On the evolutionary tree? Yes. Interestingly, haemophilia 
has actually been found in three orders. So they're uh, quite large branches of the tree. And uh, these three orders are the odd-toed ungulates. So these include species such as the zebra, the rhino, and the tapir. Are you telling me that zebras can have haemophilia? Possibly zebra, because it has been found in horse. There are also uh, another order, separate from ours, that they're found in, which is the uh, carnivores. And so carnivores include bears, hyenas, and tigers. And in this situation, it's actually six breeds of dog. Oh no! So our order, which is primates, carnivore, and the and the odd-toed ungulates, we have quite a long history of separation. I used a, uh, a tree with an evolutionary clock made um, in a paper that I'll reference at the end. And the common ancestor for the three groups was about 64.9 million years ago. About 65 million years ago is when the meteor that killed the dinosaurs hit the Earth. Whoa. So haemophilia could be slight, just slightly younger than dinosaurs, or could have even been around when dinosaurs were around in mammals. Wow. So this is an incredibly old illness. So we've always had it. Yeah, like, the odds are that the human race has always had this condition. We've always had it. How have we survived? Is it because it's rare enough that it doesn't have an impact? Well, one possible reason that it survived, because you'd, you'd think that if it wasn't advantageous, particularly in earlier human life, that it would have just not, it would not have survived. We wouldn't have this mutation. And this is because of natural selection, right? Yeah. What the theory is here is that because it makes you bleed more readily, it's possible that by having one copy of the gene, you don't clot as readily as someone who has no copies, but you're also not as prone to bleeding as someone who has two copies. And this could protect you from clotting-based illnesses. So heart attacks, if you have a clot in a blood vessel that feeds your heart, you can have a heart attack, and that could potentially kill you. Or if you get a clot in your brain, and you can have a stroke or an aneurysm, or if an aneurysm, which is when you have a blockage in a blood vessel feeding your brain, if it starts filling up behind it enough, it can burst and you can then die of a brain hemorrhage. And or a brain explosion. If you want to call it that, you can call it that. So that's a possible reason why it survived. Interestingly, though, there are some cases where having one copy or being a heterozygote doesn't actually give you an advantage. So interestingly, with haemophilia, you find that mothers that have one copy of the gene are actually more likely to have complications during pregnancy. And some of this might be because of that clotting issue. Maybe they're more likely to have heavier bleeds, which, re which will result in uh, spontaneous abortion. But mostly, someone who has one copy doesn't experience any harm to their individual lives. So they can pass it on? Yeah. Do you want to know how we actually came across it? Yes, please. What happened was a boy named Stephen Christmas was the first person to be described with the illness. Hence why it's also known as Christmas disease. He was a resident of Toronto who was visiting the UK when he fell ill. And a sample of his blood was then taken and sent to the Oxford Haemophilia Centre, where two scientists called Rosemary Biggs and Robert Gwynne McFarlane, what they noticed when they were looking through it was that the blood didn't have this shortage of factor VIII, which is what's found in Haemophilia A, but back then was just thought to be Haemophilia, 
So there was a guy with haemophilia that didn't seem to have haemophilia. Well, he had all the symptoms, but he didn't. He wasn't lacking the clotting factor that you'd expect. So they then um, they then studied the blood further and realised that he was lacking clotting factor nine. And then they published their results, and that's when the first case of haemophilia B was diagnosed, and when we started distinguishing haemophilias. Okay. So we've talked about what haemophilia is and the symptoms people experience, and a little bit about its genetic history. Where are we now, and what's coming up with haemophilia? Are we still developing treatments? Yes, we've got a really cool one coming up, actually. So uh, gene therapy, which with these Mendelian mutations, you're going to hear me probably mention for every single one of them. But gene therapy can be done in a host of different ways. With haemophilia B, they want to use a virus and transports the gene into bone marrow. And what it will do is it will insert a functional gene and replace the mutated one. What? And this treatment will last as long as those particular cells. Viruses can just go in and change genes? Yeah, because a virus hijacks your system by inserting its DNA and making your body make more of itself. But occasionally, some of it gets incorporated. What? Yeah, I know, it's cool, right? So what we're doing here is we're hijacking the virus. So we develop a virus, and then we put a little package of this gene in, so that when it goes in, it inserts that gene, and then that way, we've basically just done a cut and paste on a faulty gene. This is blowing my mind. I didn't know you could do that at, at all within the body. If this isn't taking bits out, messing with the genes and putting it back in. It's just injecting injection. a virus. Yeah, it's just an injection. And the coolest thing is, with one of those gene therapy ones, we're at phase two clinical trials. So what does that mean? Clinical trials are when we're testing in humans, and you have three phases. Phase two is when you start testing on people who are ill okay. to work out like the best dose, treatment regimen, and side effects. So it's already really quite developed. Yeah, it's probably fair to say. So with phase three, it's about a 50% chance whatever treatment you put through is going to get through. It's a little bit less, obviously, for phase two. But there's probably about a one in 10 chance that this condition could get all the way through to being in the public. And at this point, it'd probably take about, if it does, 10 to 15 years. That's really exciting. So what would that mean for the lives of people with this disease? It would mean that uh, they probably could undergo less frequent treatment sessions. Okay. And it means like in 15 years' time, they basically can do cut and paste with uh, the faulty gene. Whoa. So this could really help people's lives. It could dramatically improve the lives of people with haemophilia. Yeah, so it's, it's a really cool thing. As well as uh, knowing about these exciting treatments that are coming up, I think it's also important to point out how we can improve the lives of people with haemophilia as individuals. And I think a good thing to note, so this is obviously a good thing if you have friends that have the condition, these are things to note. So if a haemophiliac has pain, you can give them uh, paracetamol or Tylenol. This painkiller is absolutely fine. Don't bother with ibuprofen or any of the other kind of over-the-counter painkillers you'd think of because they can actually cause bleeding ulcers. Oh, which is not what they want. No. If someone's still not too familiar with their illness, you don't want to be offering it to them. Hopefully, most of the time, a haemophiliac, they know, they know what they need more than you anyway. You just ask what they need and they'll, they'll say. Another thing is obviously talking to people with haemophilia. Get to understand their lives. Go online and look at testimonials. See what the actual needs are. 
this is very good for just making sure that you have an environment around you that is inclusive for any condition really yeah because you can't you can't see hemophilia you won't always know that somebody has it they no. just might be quietly going and getting their treatment no i mean we definitely wouldn't have known with um with our friend because he's going off and doing a tequila 10k and for those who don't know what a tequila 10k is this is the most marvelously stupid thing i had ever come across <laughs> you run a 10k and with every kilometer that you run you take a shot of tequila so it's both exercise and getting hammered at the same time which is honestly in general a terrible idea for something to do with hemophilia but it also shows you that if you can manage your treatment to the extent where you can do that you're not going to be able to see that someone has hemophilia we are not endorsing tequila 10ks let's be clear i mean you might not be <laughs> drink responsibly folks even during quarantine i think it's also important to try and dispel a few myths because haemophilia has a few of them and that's kind of where some stigma around the condition comes from. Okay, I'd be interested to hear what these are. I honestly didn't have a sense of what haemophilia was at all before this episode. So, for example, if a person with haemophilia gets so much as a paper cut, he or she will bleed to death. And that is not true. <laughs> no, there's like a lot of people think that and you can see why. However, treatments obviously preventing that from being an issue if someone's having proper treatment paper cut's going to be nothing it's just going to hurt like it does everyone else another myth is that people with hemophilia have a short life expectancy and can't live normal lives i i quote the tequila 10k once more <laughs> it's not necessarily a normal life but you can definitely live the life you want another myth is that only men can have the bleeding disorder so as i said to you before it's a lot more common in men but women still have an X chromosome, so they can inherit it. You just would probably know you're going to get it because your dad would have haemophilia. Okay. Another one, and this again, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, misconceptions around haemophilia are not the most unreasonable ones, but they are a little frustrating for individuals who live with it. Haemophilia can cause HIV AIDS. No! No, having sex without a condom or sharing needles is what can cause that. The reason why people think that is obviously that a lot of haemophiliacs ended up contracting HIV from unvetted blood plasma. We vet blood plasma now, that's not an issue. It might be an issue in some countries if they're not vetting blood plasma properly, or if the government happens to be in denial of the existence of HIV, which I really hope is not the case. Yeah, but there's, there's enough stigma around HIV-AIDS anyways. Let's not add to it. Yeah. The final one, and this is, this is an interesting one. People with haemophilia have a family history of the disease. Now, this is a kind of a yes and no. You can have a family history of it. So maybe you had an uncle who had haemophilia, and then you get haemophilia, and that makes sense. But as with, you know, Queen Victoria, you could just get a random mutation. And for example, if you're a man... It's possible that maybe you just got a random mutation and no one, neither of your parents had the mutation and then you end up having haemophilia. So you could just be very unlucky. So I thought I'd just uh, reference a few sources that I was using. First one's called the Placental Mammal Ancestry and the Post-KPG Radiation of Placentals. 
this was by O'Leary et al. And this was the paper I was talking about when it came to trying to work out the common ancestor for those three mammalian groups to try and see how old haemophilia was. And another one was uh, genotype analysis identifies the cause of the royal disease. That was really interesting. I think it's really cool to learn about a disease that I only knew the name of and had no idea what it actually meant. And I'm glad as well, because it's sad to say that even with the research I do in genetics, I was quite ignorant of this condition. And, you know, I'll accept that. It's not something to be proud of, but I think a lot of people are ignorant to it. And I think we're just going to sign off from there. I think the important thing here is that you should try and be kind and non-judgmental to everyone because if you can't see the genes, you shouldn't expect to see the illness. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks.